brought to you by My Roadcast, the all-new podcasting competition from Rode Microphones. Whether you are just starting out or a seasoned professional, Rode is inviting you to submit a two-minute podcast on any topic and in any format to go in the running to win a share in $150,000 worth of prizes, including the all-new Roadcaster Pro podcast production studio. Find out more at myroadcast.com and get podcasting. This podcast is also brought to you by Blackmagic Design. Blackmagic Design's DaVinci Resolve software combines professional offline and online editing, color correction, audio post-production, and now visual effects all in one software tool. The standard for high-end post-production, DaVinci Resolve is used for finishing more Hollywood feature films, episodic television programming, and TV commercials than any other software. Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. For Lee Cronin, getting to the point where he could make his debut feature The Hole in the Ground was like climbing a greasy pole. For every step he took upwards, it always seemed like he'd have to slip back down as well. His three horror shorts helped to boost his leverage, especially the 2014 award winner Ghost Train, but none seemed to elevate him to a point where he could leave commercial work behind and commit to a career as a feature filmmaker. As the director so aptly puts it in our interview today, there's no business like slow business. Something in the air has seemingly changed this year, however, as that process has transformed into something like a slow rocket. After years of struggling, Lee Cronin's feature, The Hole in the Ground, is set for a March 1st release by none other than family horror distributor extraordinaire, A24. The film, which made its premiere at Sundance in January, follows a woman who moves to a new town with her young son in order to escape a life of domestic abuse, only to encounter an ominous sinkhole that appears to have supernatural powers which threaten the life of her child. Lee and I sat down in Park City to discuss how horror filmmakers can follow a similar path to success by staying steady on their own course without giving up. And perhaps more importantly, Cronin gives tips on how to stay positive during the grueling journey ahead. Enjoy. Hey guys, this is John Fusco, and I am here again in Park City uh, for Sundance, and I've got a very special guest. I'm going to let himself introduce himself so you can uh, hear his voice. And uh, let's hear a little bit about the film you're here with, too. My, my strained voice. Yes. There's been some lo- a lot You're of talking. So excuse me. I'm not, I'm not always quite so uh, <laughs> quite so sexy. Uh, it's My name is Lee Cronin, and I'm the uh, director and co-writer of The Hole in the Ground, which played in the Midnight Section uh, at Sundance 2019. The Midnight Section is my favorite section. Uh, let's actually just start there. You know, what what is it about the, the horror genre that attracts you as an artist and a filmmaker? I think it's the potential to manipulate an audience. Yes, cool. Essentially, what it boils down to. I also love mysteries. It's not about necessarily being a horror guy. I love a mystery, and uh, and horror lends itself so well to that. Um, so yeah, but I, I I do think it's 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 the opportunity to, it's the ultimate dark room experience. Um, so the opportunity to to put people in their seat, turn off the lights, turn on the film, uh, freak them out and move them closer to the edge of their seat. That's the thing that I enjoy. I'm very audience focused in my mind in terms of what I want to do, and um, and horror is something that's always about audience engagement. So to premiere the film here and hear people ooh and ah and gasp and you know make noise and it, it is really cool. You know? What what are the uh, tools that you have at your disposal, um, specifically as a horror filmmaker, um, that you can use to manipulate your audience? I think a huge amount of it is about how you build things up. You know. Um, the build-up and the payoff is obviously really vital. Um, and pacing and timing. I think the edit ultimately is probably your greatest tool when you're making a horror film because the difference you can you can create even by leaving something 12 frames longer 
makes people think. That's I think what you're trying to do. You're trying to play a little bit with time and space and try and control uh, where people are at. But yeah, I do think the edit is probably the most powerful tool that you have. Obviously, you got to write it. You got to plan it. You know, you got if you, something's going to be visually scary, it's got to be visually scary on the day. But but how you pace it, uh, and I suppose you know present what you've what you've captured when you shoot the movie to me is probably the most powerful tool yeah because i mean in the edit you get to also add in all the other uh tricks to like scare the audience you know the bells and whistles the bells for sure. and whistles yeah. the sound design what something i appreciate about your film is that it's not very reliant on jump scares which is something that i find to be a little bit annoying during horror sure. films um but yeah so like, we've got one or two but i think we've oh, we earned them one or two is fine yeah you know? <laughs> yeah i'm i'm all for a good jump scare but when the whole movie is like yeah a jump scare it's uh you'd mentioned uh just then about having something seem visually scary on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never really heard a director or, or, and I've talked to a few horror directors talk about something like that. How can you, because it is a lot different when you're in the edit, it's much easier to see how something would be scary. Yeah. But then when you're there shooting, how are you making sure that you're getting what you need? I think you're hoping you get what you need in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, I think what I mean by visually scary is I think there's certain, so like, again, I don't want to spoil much in the movie, but there's, there's certain moments that as a single shot, you know, are, I hope are quite arresting in what they, mm-hmm. they say or do. So mm-hmm. some of the more visceral moments. Um, and I think if you plan them and we, the, the film was very heavily designed in advance in terms of storyboarding and shot listing. And I knew exactly what I wanted it to be from time to time. So, you know, I had the pleasure of shooting something and actually playing it back. And, and, and getting the feeling if it would work. I'd also sometimes keep my editor on set and we might go and start putting a rough cut of something together and we might check it out after lunch and it's like, oh, wait, you know, maybe we need to go back and just capture a little bit more or get another angle on something. But, I, you know, there's I think you need in a horror film, I think you need those three, four, five moments that um, you hope can become iconic in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, a frame, even if, you know, it's just a, a moment that gets, you know, screen grabbed or pulled out of your movie that kind of, um, has that 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 horrific visually arresting thing that you want? Yeah, it's like a mental screen grab. Yeah, so, yeah, know, of course. Like if something, if a certain frame strikes you viscerally, and you walk away with out of the theater just with that image kind of stuck in your mind, I think you've done your job. Yeah, right? something can stick. And I think it's not. It's not that I think my intention was for there to be some of those moments, and I hope that some of them that some of those moments do stick with people. Using those moments to sort of build to a larger theme, I think, is is something that is present in your work, too. The larger dramatic themes in your story are have to do with, you know, family, really. I mean, A24 has been killing it on the family horror market yeah, lately. Yeah. Um, but what about your past or what about you, even, like, living in Ireland, growing up in that environment, contribute to the story that you were trying to tell here? Yeah, I think... Um we have a dark history in Ireland. We have a history of sometimes brushing things under the carpet or, you know, repressing the truth a little bit without going too deep or heavy into it because it's still a movie that's, you know, I've made for people to enjoy as a horror film. And and there's certainly an element of this story that is about, you know, a mother that has potentially been a little bit overprotective of her son, um, but also trying to make the right decisions for him. And we enter the story at a very pivotal time in their relationship. Um, and... You know, she brings him to a place and maybe she brings him to the wrong place. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's... it's. I'm trying to think of, of, of an interesting way of, of defining what I mean here, but it's like, it's... 
it's instinctive, I guess, as an Irish person. You know, huh. we have a little bit of a dark past. We have a little bit of a dark history. Okay. We know we know how to be uh, repressed, and I don't. I don't start talking about religion and the church because that's not what it's about. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's there. It's mm-hmm. it's it's kind of in our fabric. Hmm. We're speaking about the mother and son's relationship, and uh, I mean, it's clearly the centerpiece of the film, and it's almost like they're the only two people in the movie yeah so i was wondering you know how were you able to foster that sort of chemistry between them uh was there any like rehearsal process beforehand when you were auditioning yeah there, there very much was we did we you know at one point it was down to two kids and i did some chemistry tests with with, with shauna who plays uh the lead who plays sarah the mother in the story um so we did do those kind of chemistry tests and, and got a sense of how shauna interacted and how you know each of the of, of the two uh young guys that were, mm-hmm. that were that were vying for the role had they behaved with her in, in turn and then we made our selection I kind of did this kind of like mother and son camp um, <laughs> you know where they we, you know we hung out and we rehearsed some scenes and we workshopped some stuff and we just like have lunch you know and we tell jokes and just just to try and build up a little bit of rapport because I did feel it was really important and that if, if we didn't have that chemistry in place if they didn't feel like a real you know, family, even though they're a very, very small family, yeah. but if they didn't feel real, then I wasn't going to be able to um, to put you in an emotional space to then take you and mix you up a little bit with the horror <laughs> that comes later. Can we talk about how you got to the point where you actually able to make this feature? Like just as a filmmaker, um, what were the steps that you took uh, to put yourself in this position to succeed? Um, yeah, it's, and that's a great question. I think you know, you make your shorts, and I always say it's like it's it's a greasy pole to okay. get to get. You know, it's, it's it's there's a bit of climbing and a bit of slipping back down hmm. uh, to get your feature film made. I'm lucky that I work with people that I trust, um, and you know, as an Irish filmmaker, we get great you know home support right. from from Screen Ireland. They were called the Irish Film Board, and I made the film. They're now called Screen Ireland. You know, they're kind of a talent development agency in a lot of ways, and you know, they get behind you and they you know they offer some finance so that you can work on your screenplay and you know, try and, and try and learn. And, you know, you write a few misfires along the way. And th- even this this film had like a, you know, I wouldn't say a terrible draft, but a draft that was never going to be a movie. It was far too ambitious for a debut feature. Um, and yeah, and you just keep on pushing that boulder up the hill or climbing that greasy pole or, you know. Um, and then you hit that turning point where you feel like the script is ready and then you share it with the right people and you apply for finance, you apply for production finance from the Irish Film Board. Um, I mean, if you if you get that yes, you get that kind of commitment, that allows you to then go look for money in other places, you know. And first money in is really important when you're making a movie, um, because the the project, forgetting about even the screenplay or me, the project itself is a viable thing. Kind of, you know, people get confidence in it, and it's 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 inter- like a lot of films that are made in Europe are European co-productions, and this is another one. So it's got Irish money, uh, it's got some Belgian money, it's got some Finnish money, and then we've got a little bit of market money in there as well. So yeah, it's like it's it's building this this puzzle and there's all these junctions where you're like you know is it all going to fall apart today um but thankfully this one didn't does that sort of add any pressure as a filmmaker when you're like working with all this money from all these different uh foundations i don't think i don't think if you've got great uh, good producers they protect you from that but also people ideally if people give you this money not that they just give it to you but if you know if you secure this funding and this finance um you know, you should be confident that they're doing it for the right reasons, hmm. so that they're supporting you, and they and they believe in the script, and they believe in it, what what you're trying to make. And how many shorts did you make before you made this feature? Officially three. Okay. And then, then there's the crazy shit that I did in college, you know, <laughs> uh, which is very very different to what my shorts are. But yeah, I you know, um, yeah, three three shorts, you know, 
I suppose you could nearly say over the last decade, but over the last eight years. And it was a long gap from my last short to making this feature. I worked in advertising for time as well, mm. which probably distracted me slightly from getting my feature made, even though it was what I desperately wanted to do. Mm. Um, but you got to keep the lights on. You got to pay the bills. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, been a long enough journey nothing ever happens overnight it feels right now like it's all happening overnight because suddenly you're here and the film goes down well and there's focus and attention on it um but i guess the the hope now is that the next one won't take so long so then while you were advertising were you doing things still in the filmic world to keep totally all the time all the time but I, i tended to find i remember doing a mathematical equation i make it sound like it's really complicated it's not that complicated at all but i remember figuring out that if i shot four ads in a year um, you know, maybe each one takes six to eight weeks of your of your time between prep and doing it and pitching on it, all the stuff you got to do to make an ad. Yeah. And that's half a year. And then if you spread that out over five years, it's two and a half years. And two and a half years is about the amount of time you need to make a movie. So, yeah, I'm not sure I'll go back there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny that you, uh, that you call it advertising because when you said that, um, I thought, you know, you'd maybe move in the States. We'd be like, oh, you were working for maybe like an advertising agency or something, or you were like doing some marketing development, but you were really just doing what we call commercial. Yeah. Work. I was directing TV commercials. Yeah. 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 Directing TV commercials. Which I think is still like a pretty viable means. It is. And it's great. And like, you know, it, you know, and it pays well. And I, I guess I learned a lot along the way, but you reach a point where you, you know, you want to stop making 30 second oh, moments yeah. about people eating biscuits <laughs> you know and instead you actually want to go and tell your story and uh so ghost train had a lot of success yeah uh was that the movie that really like propelled you would you say into making this feature yeah i guess i don't know if i'd say propel because it was it was a very slow you know it was yeah. a slow rocket mm-hmm. um, <laughs> slow. yeah if that's such a thing but <laughs> i think that's the film industry yeah i guess it probably is yeah there's no business like slow business <laughs> um yeah, it certainly was. I think the other shorts we made, it everything we've done along the way, myself and, and the people that I work with, we've always kind of taken not just like a step forward, but like a ton of steps forward. Mm-hmm. And Ghost Train mm-hmm. was was a pretty big deal, and it, you know, played in a lot of festivals, and it got a lot of attention, and it actually brought in some offers for me as well for movies to direct. Um, but I knew that I wanted to kind of share my voice fully, and that it was something that I needed to to write as well or be involved with the writing of. Uh, and to control a little bit to, to, to share my voice you only get one chance to make your debut feature film yeah but I mean you talk about control and I think that so much about directing is about also relinquishing control and you know being open to collaborators and it seems like you had some very good collaborators on absolutely this it's so true like it's it's really humbling to have so many people congratulate you during Sundance you know even if people stopping in the street and saying I saw your movie and like I thought it was great and and but you know, and then the people close to you are like, look, congratulations. And it's great, but it, it it's totally a team effort. Like it really, really is. And I'm not going to hide behind some of the strengths of the film or because of other people, of course. But I'm still the one that has to be there to make the decisions ultimately, you know. Do you go left or do you go right in this moment? This podcast is brought to you by My Roadcast, the all-new podcasting competition from Rode Microphones. Rode is inviting podcasters of all experience levels to showcase their talents. Submit an incredible two-minute podcast on any topic and in any format to go in the running to win a share in $150,000 worth of prizes, including the all-new Roadcaster Pro production studio, Rode Pod mics, headphones from Urban Ears, Adobe subscriptions, and heaps more. Find out how to enter, who will be judging, and see the full list of prizes at myroadcast.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Blackmagic Design. Blackmagic Design has grown rapidly to become one of the world's leading innovators and manufacturers of creative video technology. 
The company's philosophy is refreshing and simple, to help true creativity blossom by allowing the highest quality video to be affordable to everyone. Its products include the world's highest quality video editing products, digital film cameras, color correctors, live production switchers, and a host of other hardware for the feature film, post-production, and television broadcast industries. The Pocket Cinema Camera 4K is Blackmagic Design's new next-generation 4K handheld camera. It comes with dual native ISO with an amazing up to 25,600 ISO for incredible light performance, a full four-thirds HDR sensor, and 13 stops of dynamic range. It also comes with both ProRes or RAW recording to internal SD UHS-2 and CFAS cards, or even external USB-C drives, eliminating the need for expensive external recorders. I love the uh, cinematography in particular, um, and you know the color palette. And I read a little bit about uh, why you chose that color palette. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the cinematography and the colors? Yeah, I think like so. <coughs> excuse me. Um, Tom Comerford, the director of photography, we'd worked together for a long time. We got very similar tastes, which helps a lot. We knew we wanted the film to be um, within a certain spectrum of color. We wanted this kind of slightly autumnal tone to it, even though we ended up shooting in the summer. So we wanted to use a lot of browns and yellows, and we didn't want too much heavy primary color in the film. And I think, I think we probably, you know, challenged a lot of other departments with the fact that we wanted to do this. So we were like, you know, we'd be going into rooms and sticking color wheels on the wall and going, you know, there'd be, you know, a line drawn on that color wheel left and right. And we'd be like, they shall not pass beyond either of these. Like, don't bring me a red jumper because it's not going to be in the movie. And I think that was just to try and elevate on the low budget, just elevate its cinematic qualities and just to have a consistency, um, as well as just to strike a tone of, a little bit of a tone of decay, I suppose. Um, and then when we actually, you know, applied that, you know, what we did, um, we did a lot of planning with what we shot. And it was a very, it's part of my process, I guess, but it was a very controlled and planned and structured thing. I kind of like to design it all out and you, you take a risk in doing that. And I think it was something I mentioned in the Q&A, but I think the film's 90 minutes long, including titles and credits. I think the longest version assembly of the film is like 98 minutes. We shot nothing extraneous at all. Um, and we still spend a lot of time in the edit because you can make so many choices about pace and and tone and things you want to leave behind or move or restructure um, and performance as well in terms of how you want to capture it through different takes. But yeah, it, it was always a film that was kind of pre-visualized in a lot of ways. So how did that uh, come together with production design? It seems like almost the cinematography or the visual choices. I mean, I guess obviously in an ex to an extent, but uh, just the what you were seeing in camera would later lead to the the world you were trying to build. I don't think I'm phrasing this right, but it's almost as if the cinematography in that sense informed the production design. I think we just ran them side by side. But I, like, I would feel, you know, from a departmental point of view that the cinematographer, although they're not the production designer and it's a collaboration, but the cinematographer has to be responsible for everything that's in the frame. Um, so we do have to have that veto over things in terms of what it is that we're, that we're doing. So but we had a good collaboration. We spent a lot of time debating and talking and you know I'll, I'll be a stickler for details I, re I remember the Friday night before we like there's a kitchen table in the film that features a lot because there's a number of scenes in the kitchen and it plays part of a little action scene kind of a small action scene as well or two actually and I remember visiting the house and everything happens at the last minute when you make a movie so on the Friday before we shot which was going to be a Monday that we were starting I visited the house and a lot of the stuff was finally in place and I saw the table and we the table and we built from scratch because I couldn't find the sort of shape that I wanted. And I went in, I remember thinking, 
shit, that table's really big. <laughs> like really, really big. And I was like, it's fine. And then I, I, I couldn't sleep. Even though it's such a stupid detail of the table. So I rang the production designer um, on the Saturday morning at like probably like 7 a.m. I was like, dude, I haven't been able to sleep. That table is like way too big. And he's like, well, it's the table that we need. You know, it's the table that's there. And I was like, we have to build a new table. It's, it's, it's twice the size it needs to be. I need the characters to be a little bit closer to each other. You know, again, if you watch the movie, you'll see what, how the, there's an interaction moment with the table itself. Um, yeah, so like, yeah, controlling, I don't know, I'm rambling now in terms of off your question, but controlling those details is kind of crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're talking about the house a little bit. So, I mean, one of the things that actually got a laugh at the screening that I was at was when uh, the, uh, the 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 mom yeah. uh, finally finished her wallpaper yeah. design. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know where this a, is going. There's a pretty big influence there, and yeah. I just wanted to like talk a little bit about your influences like yeah. as a horror filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah that the wallpaper choice that I made may annoy some people, but <laughs> when so I think again I, I was talking about it in the Q and A, it was not planned. Really? No, it wasn't planned. And what I mean by that out is of all the things that were planned. <laughs> yeah, it actually wasn't planned in the sense that it it wasn't a um, it wasn't something I went looking for. So I was brought like there's there's quite a lot of wallpaper in the film. Actually. Yeah, if you, yeah. If you really, there's a lot of different wallpapers, and we we controlled every detail. We wanted to choose the wallpapers we wanted you know to decide the wallpaper plays a tiny part in the plot i suppose not really the plot but it's part of the tapestry mm-hmm. um and uh just for the the, the scene where, you know the re-wallpapering scene that takes place or that moment i just got presented with some options that's all it was and i looked at one of them and i was like wow <laughs> i can't say no to that yeah you know so i didn't i didn't go hey go get me some wallpaper that looks like the carpet in the overlook yeah it the wallpaper just did look like that and there was no way i was not going to put it on the walls when right. i saw it wasn't one of those happy acts yeah yeah for sure um great well i guess just to like finish things off here um i'd like to ask you a question that i ask uh, most of my guests and that's uh if you had any specific piece of advice uh especially i think for emerging horror filmmakers uh what would it be stick to your guns okay you know i think um don't i probably couldn't have said this to myself five years ago don't rush to do anything try and find the idea that you're willing to live with for the amount of time it takes to make the movie and if, and if you do that whatever the outcome you'll be proud of what you do um and you know, there's so many different spectrums within the genre um, that I'm not going to try and offer advice in terms of how to make a horror movie, but but as best as you can, try and be original or use your influences in a way that at least you feel are original. Um, but certainly, yeah, it's like just keep 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 warm because it's you know you, you know it takes a while to push that boulder up the hill and make it, but but stick stick at it, stick at it for do sure. Do you have any advice on how to do that? <laughs> that's a tough one um how like how to stay in the game yeah no just how to how to like be okay with taking your time with something you know like are there are there any things that you would do to sort of placate your uh i think just look at the bigger picture and recognize that it is a long game Hmm. you know if you're if you're making movies and you and you're hoping that you're gonna have a legacy someday in terms Mm -hmm. of all the body of work that you've done Mm -hmm. and something to look back on um that that year where you wish you were making a film but it wasn't ready yet will seem like a very small thing at that time. So mm-hmm. I think yeah, just look at the bigger picture and, and try and get it right because I I I'm, I'm, I can only speak from the point of view of being a debut film director, but you only get one opportunity to make your first film. So try and make the best film that you can. Yeah, and I mean even looking at it that way, your first film is just 
the first of many in your it, legacy. That's, that's what I hope for. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, I think so. We'll see how we're doing in the next year or two. And when is the movie coming out? Uh, March the 1st. March the 1st. Yeah, so very yeah, soon. Very soon. Or so, did I say March 1st? I'm in America. Just March I, 1st. You know, yeah, March 1st. March 1st. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Through A24, which is awesome. Yeah. Congrats, man. Thanks very much. And, Appreciate uh, that. we'll see you at the next Yeah, I hope so. Film Festival. Yeah, absolutely. Midnight section. I hope so. Thing. Cool, man. All right, dude. <laughs> All right, thanks, dude. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please make sure and subscribe to the No Film School podcast. We're on whatever podcast platform you use. New interviews like these can be heard every Monday. And if you like what you heard, or if you didn't, go ahead and give us a rating. Let us know how we're doing. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. You can follow No Film School at No Film School. And of course, check out the site every day for new articles, new tips, new stuff about the art of filmmaking. Until next week.